Good morning. My name is Carla Kepler, and this morning we continue in Romans, moving into chapter 5. If you'd like to follow along with today's scripture reading, now is the time to get out your Bible or use the screens, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I don't see any iPads out there. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again, church. Um, in my mind, uh, you guys are second service people. And so good morning, second service. Uh, we are plowing our way through the book of Romans, and we are hitting a good stride here with chapter 5. Uh, I got to tell you, um, chapter 1 was exciting. Chapter 2 has started ramping down for me a little, and I've been a little bit bored. Chapters kind of sort of uh, through to 4. And then 5 and 8, to me, are really fun. And then a little bit of a lull again, and then chapter 12. And then it just begins to disintegrate into names I can't pronounce and such things. So um, this, is, this is the beginning of a good, um, good little segment here. The main idea that emerges for me, and I think probably for you as well, is the idea of hope. It's the word that's used most here. Uh, Any commentary you pick up on this passage will tell you this passage is about hope. Now, hope, in my mind, is a really, really big, large word. There's there's lots of different angles we can take on it. Uh, I read a lot of definitions or uh, things people had to say about this concept of hope, not just in this passage, but from everywhere. And uh, it totally overwhelmed me with all the different things that should be said about hope. But one idea emerged as common to all of the ideas surrounding hope, and it's this idea. We are not home yet. Are you home? Is this where you belong? What you have in life? Have you arrived? Check. Done. This is where you want to be forever? Are you home? And uh, 
I certainly feel like I am not home. I know that there are longings in my heart. There are frustrations in my life. And I feel a disconnect with my surroundings. And there's a sense that I'm still longing for home. A saint uh, hero of mine is a Christian musician, uh, the late Rich Mullins. And how many of you know Rich Mullins? Yeah, he sort of was like my guy. It's for me. It's uh, Keith Green and Rich Mullins, and today it's Keith uh, Rich Mullins. Here he is, right there, a good Midwestern boy, and he more than uh, anybody else that I can think of longed for a home. He lived with a very uh, pronounced sense that he was made for a different place, and he longed for it in his songs. And I'm going to read to you. Uh, some lyrics from two of his songs, and I think you'll get a similar sense. First one, nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I call you my country, but I'll be lonely for my home, and I wish that I can take you there with me. Second lyric, and if I were a painter, I do not know which I'd paint the calling of the ancient stars, or assembling of the saints. And there's so much beauty around us for just two eyes to see. But everywhere I go, I'm looking. Looking for what? Looking for home. Uh, This next next picture here, uh, take in that look, that gaze a little bit. Have any of you rec- like felt this before? Do you recognize that expression as something familiar to you or someone you love? Like, I resonate with that picture. You know, there's something very deep and powerful. In fact, when I was writing um, the lyrics, typing out the lyrics to Rich Mullen's song, I just started weeping. And uh, I was sitting at my kitchen table, and I started listening to Rich Mullen's songs. I just was sitting there alone in the house, just like a baby. You know, I have this reservoir deep inside, and I don't always tap into this reservoir, but it's there. And once in a while, it just starts gushing, and I can't stop. Like, I know I'm supposed to be loved differently. I know I'm supposed to have different character and different responses to things. I just know... This isn't it. I long for home. Um, I try to pen some uh, cute and deep coinable phrases uh, to describe hope. Here's three of, three of them. The first one is just okay. First, hope is this amazing thing in us. I know it's just okay. Check this second one out. Though. It gets better. Hope is a memory of home. Getting better, right? This one is a little bit deep. This third one here. Ready? Hope is eternity's plumb line. And you're like, what's a plumb line? (laughs) 
A plumb line is a weight that you tie at the end of a thread, and then when you sort of hang the weight, it forms a line that's perfectly perpendicular to the uh, point of the earth where you're standing right there. Right? And so builders use it to make sure walls are plumb. They're perfectly 90 degrees at that exact spot. And that plumb line changes as you go move on the surface of the earth, obviously. Right? But it's eternity's reminder of what ought to be. That your soul is eternal. It's not temporal. It's meant to be loved, not abused. And it's this thing that lives in us, hope. Now, Christians and I think human nature in general have uh, in large part and frequently misunderstood hope. We have used it. And uh, so I feel an obligation as the Christian minister preacher to uh, do two things. One, I want to list out some of the ways that Christians have misunderstood and misused hope as a way to give you and us an opportunity to own that these are misunderstandings and abuses of the idea of hope. And if you are sitting here and you are not somebody who labels himself a Christian, consider this our public apology and uh, also an invitation for you to own this because we all do this. This is not a strictly Christian thing. But since Christians tend to talk about hope more, we have to, I think, own it a little bit more. First, um, misunderstanding. Hope is not an escape hatch. It's not just thing that you look at as a way to not have to uh, really face reality. It's not an emotional crutch, but it's something that allows you to actually confront reality more. Right? So for example, if you have hope, if you know this isn't it, then you're less afraid, afraid to come near it you can actually embrace it and deal with it, face it, confront it, because you have something better. Whereas if this is all you have, you have to kind of look away, because you know if you look square at it, you're going to be disappointed. Right? And so hope is not an escape hatch. Second, hope is not an excuse for laziness, indifference, self-preservation, or personal agendas. Now, I know I have, and I, I, I would bet that you have as well, used hope as a way to be passive, as a way not to do stuff. You just say, oh, I hope it happens. I prayed about it. If you actually prayed about it, it causes you to work more. If you actually have hope, that hope results from diligence and you working hard your activity, not your passivity. Hope, by definition, is the byproduct, the end product of having done all that you can, and now all that you can do is to hope. Right? So not an excuse for laziness. And third, hope is not your hopes, but it's the hope. And this is true whether you are a believer or not, whether you acknowledge existence of God or not. And here's how I know this. Because everything that you have ever, ever put hope in, you've moved on from. You have 
thought about something. You've had an if only thought about something. If only I could have this. And then you've come to it. And then what happened? You realize, oh, it's just an arrow. It's pointing to something else. So you move on to the next thing. You put your hope in that and you arrive at that. And then what do you come, what conclusion do you come to? Oh my gosh, that's not it either. Okay. Oh, I see. Now that's in the shape of an arrow. Okay. That way. Got it. Let me go there. And you go there and then that thing points you to there and you go, you keep going. And ultimately you realize everything in life by design is created and is pointing to a creator. This is what you realize. Every love you've hoped for, every object you long to possess, all these have pointed you to something else. To what? That's what we're going to talk about today. What has it pointed you to? The hope. All your hopes are valid. If you would only allow it to serve the purpose for which they exist. To point you to our great hope. Now, uh, um, I have two points today, two questions I want to ask and try to respond to. The questions are, why do you need hope? And how can you have hope? Now, I made a very wise and disciplined decision in the first service to stop after the first question so that y'all can, you know, get get out here um, as promised. So that's probably what we're going to do, but um, we're going to kind of go through it and my guess is we're going to run out of time just as we did in the first service okay right chris right he was giving me the stink eye the evil stink eye to uh, shut it down or close shop as we say okay why do you need hope my first answer is that we all need a context for suffering. Now, suffering is assumed. It's a reality. It's what happens in life. It's the word that's here, tribulations. We will get to that in the second question. But suffering is assumed. And this passage, Romans 1 to 5, 1 to 5, assumes suffering as the context for hope. Now, what's really painful about pain isn't the fact of pain, but it's the fact that we don't experience immediately a context for that pain. You think about that for a second. When you experience physical pain, like you're getting a shot, like many of us are going to go get flu shots soon in the next couple of months, right? When we do that, there's a little prick and it hurts, but it doesn't like mess us up anymore. Does it? Do you go home? Oh my gosh, God doesn't love me. Does that happen? No, because there's a context for that pain. You understand that that pain has a purpose and that pain has an author, right? There's a redemption for that pain. When we were little, when we we're babies and we don't have the mental capacity We don't have a context for that pain. So we do blubber and cry and we react, we overreact because we don't have a context for that pain. And I want to submit to you today that the suffering in your life, what's really painful about that is not the fact of that suffering, but it's that you don't have a context for that suffering. 
what I need to know most when I'm going through some tough stuff is that it's not just happening. And I need to know that it's not personal to me. It's not like I'm especially messed up or I especially deserve to be punished in some way. Like, did I do something wrong? Why don't you like me? I need to know that's not it. And I need to know that there is a God who is purposeful and strategic, who has an economy that's efficient and perfect and not one tear is wasted. There's this thing called redemption for my suffering. That, if I have that when I'm suffering, I am okay. You search your heart, you search your mind. I challenge you, this is what you're looking for when you are hurting. And this is what verse 1 is getting at. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this word peace is a really powerful word that in the meaning of it doesn't come across in the English, but it's a political and war sort of word language. And so the actual definition, the first definition of this word is exemption from rage and havoc of war. You know what this is saying? This is saying that war and rage, and havoc, that's normal, that's default. When you dial everything down and you turn it all off, and nothing is happening, what should be happening is war. Oh, you lost an arm? What else is new? That's normal, that's life. Right? When bad things happen, and you're just raging inside, or tragedy happens, suffering happens, and unfortunate events happen, All of that is normal. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what goes down on planet Earth when planet Earth is doing what planet Earth is supposed to do. My question for you is, why are you surprised by it? Why are you upset about it? Why are you even aware of it? Why? That's just default. This is what this is saying. But there's this thing called peace. And peace is an exemption from the default. When you are an exception to the rule, you have peace with God. Another second definition for this word peace is to be in constant sort of the action, to be exempt from the constant action and reaction cycle. Imagine like chemistry lab and just reaction. And then that leads to another reaction and the whole lab is just blowing up and you're like right in the middle of it. Just picture that. And that's life. That's your life. That's my life. Externally, internally, Life is really, really hard because that's life. Say, define life. Suffering, pain, agony, death. That's life. Right? That's true. But we can have peace with God. 
that we are forgiven internally and that forgiveness changes us fundamentally and it changes the world permanently. That's, that's the hope of God. That's the peace with God. Now, I've had peace before on planet Earth. It's like just quiet. My kids are asleep. You know, and they're upstairs and I'm downstairs and Susie's upstairs too because she's still, you know, closing shop on her iPad or whatever. And I'm just by myself and I, I sit up in bed. It's like quiet. But it's so loud in my head. And I'm tossing and turning and the day is coming and the clock is ticking. But I can't find rest. You ever experienced that? They're like, no, I'm, I'm good with Ambien. <laughs> See, peace with God, it's not just quiet. Quiet isn't peace. Peace is the presence of rest. It's exemption from the war that we call life. And this is the promise. This is part of the hope. Do you have it? <clears throat> I uh, experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus this week in the most tangible, small, minute way that only I can because it's my life. And I want to share this story with you. And uh, in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about this idea of grace. And so I really wanted to save it for that, but it's, I got to do it. It's the Lord's will. So um, I was really into coffee before I got here. Because when I started ministry, I got into coffee and coffee and pastoring kind of seemed to go together. Right, because we want to talk. What do we do? We go offer coffee. But prior to coming to uh, the Northwest a year ago, I had only known drip coffee, and uh, I I knew a lot about drip coffee. But that was sort of my standard par excellence was drip coffee. And uh, I came here, and my coffee maker was away. It was like put away somewhere. And so Karen, the woman that was standing next to me uh, for the membership receiving. She lent me her espresso maker. That's like drip coffee and espresso, right? And I got a taste of coffee. And I just began to think, oh my gosh, these people in the Northwest have been keeping this from us. The rest of the country, we're drinking drip. We're drinking like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And these people are making espressos. And so we, we really got addicted to it. And then my research obsessive brain turned on and I started reading everything about coffee. Like I probably know more about coffee than most natives here, right? Watching videos, how-tos, articles, science articles about the science of beans and how they're made and what causes acidity and temperature and time, just the whole thing. I'm studying, studying, studying. And then after many, many failed attempts at different ways of making, pulling a good shot, I settled on this one manual machine called the Rock Espresso Maker. And it won uh, Gadget of the Year last year from some high-like thing. I'm like, this is it. I got to get this. But the problem is I'm cheap. And it's $200. I know that's relatively cheap for an espresso maker, but I buy it, and I'm so excited, right? It's the result of just years of my life. And I use it for a week. It's beautiful coffee. 
comes out of this machine. But then I notice at the end of the week, there's a crack in the main hinge. It's a double lever manual like espresso maker. And there's a crack. I'm like, oh, disappointed, but thankful that I bought it from Amazon, right? No problem. Send it back. And I said, you know what? I don't want to deal with that, so I'm not going to get another one. Uh, but Amazon apparently has some kind of algorithm where they decide who they're going to badger for reviews. And this particular machine only has eight reviews on Amazon, and so they want more reviews. So they're kind of badgering me a little bit. So finally, I write a review, right? Just whatever, three stars. Everybody else gave it five. I gave it three. Here's why. Here's some things I liked about it, pros and cons. And then I forget about it. And then two weeks pass, and then it's this past week. And I get an email to my utter shock, an email from Rock, the company. They had somehow tracked me down. And they write me this long apologetic email about my experience and how clearly I had a bad experience from a defective machine. And they would love the opportunity for me to, to use one of their non-defective machines at their cost. And so they would like uh, me to send them my address so that they can send me a new machine. Twisting my arm, score. Great, I- I'm willing to do that right? Thank you. I'm surprised. I would love to give it another shot. I appreciate your customer service. Commendable. Blah, blah, blah. Sends me another email and he says, we're going to ship it to you right now. We're so excited for you to do this. And we'd like to pay for you to take some lessons on how to make a good espresso. (laughs) Apparently, apparently there are some places out here who like hold classes on how to use this machine. And it costs money. They're going to pay for it, right? So this is great. And check this out. This is, this is the part where I experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Ready? And they said, we think a, a part of what might have gone wrong with the machine is you weren't tamping your coffee properly. Do you know what a tamper is? Tamper is this heavy metal flat round thing where you... You have to apply like 30 to 50 pounds of pressure on the coffee so that you get it at just the right density so that the water flows through it at the right rate. Some of you know that. You're like, yeah, go on. (laughs) So they said, we want to send you a tamper as well. And so we're going to order it for you from another company. They're sending a tamper. And we believe this is the tamper you would like. This is what they said. And RSVP, that's the brand. RSVP, 49 millimeter tamper in red. They were very specific. And, and here's why I experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because I had researched tampers. Of course I have. And I had settled on an RSVP red 49 millimeter tamper out of the thousands of tampers that are out there. This was the one that all of my research culminated to. And I didn't put it on my wish list, Amazon wish list. They couldn't have seen it. How did they know this? In your mind, if that's a coincidence, there's no hope for you believing in God. <laughs> and I just was floored. Oh my gosh. The Lord Jesus Christ knows my name. 
he knows my like favorite color and the brand and the size. Because they could have gone with a 50 or a 48. They both fit. They all fit. But I wanted the 49. So I'm floored by this. And all week long, I'm feeling the love of God. And this is small. This is stupid. I know. But imagine this happened to you. A $200 machine. A $16.99 tamper. Oh, get this. Not only are they paying for lessons. They also sent me coffee. Because they felt to get the precise grind was too hard for a novice like me. So they want to pre-grind it to the precise, you know, grinding level and send that to me. I totaled it up. It's like 250 bucks. God loves me that much. (laughs) I'm worth. Verse 2. Through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. This happened to me this week. I felt the grace of God. Like I didn't deserve this. Like clearly I didn't deserve this. Most people have to buy stuff. I just got stuff from the company that makes the stuff who chased me down. That feels like grace to me. Right? And it's small, but it's not like grace is out there. It's not like it was back there. It's right here. I'm standing in it. And I felt the lifting up of my heart. And afterwards, I felt hope rising. I don't know why. I don't know how. But it happened. And it's this grace of God in which we stand. That's the context for suffering. Second is conservation of anxiety. It's a, it's a law of thermodynamics. There's a law called conservation of energy. Anybody know what conservation of energy is? Some of you know. It means this. It means that the sum total of energy in any closed system remains constant. It's a mouthful. Here's what it means in English. It means that you can't create or destroy energy. Energy just changes forms. It goes from electricity, that's energy, to light or heat, right? Same amount of energy. The energy level, if you could give it a number, stays constant within a closed system. Unless it leaves a system. But again, you haven't destroyed or created energy. Now, my uh, phrase is conservation of anxiety. What do you think I might mean by that? That means the sum total of anxiety in a closed system remains constant. It does not change. That means the anxiety in your life remains always the same, but sometimes you're a little bit smarter than other times, and you're able to say, oh, could you hold this for me for a sec? And you delegate your anxiety to somebody else, but it's actually just yours. It's like free-floating in your system. And we're all just passing anxiety to each other. Any of you been on a road trip that you didn't plan? Your anxiety level is way lower. Because you're not worried about time and rest stops and getting somewhere. You're not thinking about that. Because somebody else is bearing the anxiety for that closed event, that system. Right? Or husbands and wives, you've experienced this when you're, when you're child-rearing. Remember when you're doing that? What happens? It's like wife is going crazy. Husband is like, ah, I'm good at this father thing. Huh. 
Wife goes away for an afternoon. Husband's freaking out, bearing all that anxiety because wife is not thinking about kids anymore. Right? So that's conservation of anxiety. Well, what about anxiety for this closed system that we call earth? Where does that go? If we all are here on planet earth, and we are a closed system, all of our anxieties and fears and worries, where does it go? We just pass it on to each other. It's not actually, the problem isn't being solved. It's just being delayed. It's being put on the other side of the corner, so we can't see it right then and there. But there it is. There it is. I was uh, one of my favorite comedians. He has this one little bit where he talks about this. And he says, you know how you solve problems on the planet Earth? You just throw human suffering at it. It's like you want to you wanna have a great railroad system? What do you do? You just throw Chinese people at it. And then you have a railroad system. You want to build the pyramids? What do you do? You just throw the Israelites at it. And he goes on and he names all these great feats of society, humankind. And then he names a very specific people. We had to not care about their suffering in order for that feat to be accomplished. That's conservation of anxiety. As long as we're willing to put the burden on somebody else, our life is great. But problem is not solved. Who will bear this anxiety for us? In my research of doing this uh, sermon, I happened upon a Northwestern University study. And the researchers there, this is just hot off the press, right? They were able to use smell, electric shock, and images to delete fear, specific fear, from your brain. Where does it go? Because I know conservation of energy is true. I know conservation of anxiety is true. Where do their fears go? Have we solved the problem? Have we bent the rule, the law of thermodynamics, by using shock and smell and pictures? Have we? I don't think we have. And what we need And I think you know this. Even if you're not a believer, on a deep level, you know this. You need somebody to take the fear of life from you and never, ever, ever give it back. You need somebody to absorb all of the anxiety in your life and just destroy it. Somebody has to not just die, but kill death itself. That's coming later. Who will do that for us? This is what we call a savior. And Paul says, it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have peace with God. And we have obtained an introduction into this grace. We, begin, we taste of it a little bit, but we stand in it now. But more than standing in it, we exalt in the hope. It's coming. The glory 
of God. Who is able to do it? God and God alone. How can he do it? Because he's glorious. You know what the word glory here means? It's the word weight. He alone is heavy enough to take our anxieties. Everybody else is crushed by it. It just turns out to be human agony and suffering. You throw anybody at any problem we have, and they will be destroyed by it. But only in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he alone is glorious. He's heavy enough to take it on. And this, my friends, is the Christian hope. And so I ask you, why do you need hope? The answer is in your life. You live this week and you tell me if you need hope or not. Do you need somebody to take it on? Do you need a context for suffering? And the second question is, how can we have hope? How can we have this? And we'll get to that at another time. Okay, I want to end with a couple of application points. The first application point is I want to remind you that God in Christ loves you very, 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 very much. That when you are suffering, when you have questions, when life is frustrating and it's disappointing, God loves you. It's, it's not personal. He's already taken on all of the penal aspects of that. He has been punished for us instead of us. It's what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. He has taken it all on for us. And every day, he wants you to know that he loves you. The artist that I quoted earlier, Rich Mullins, he was quite a theologian. And he said this. He said, there's only really one question God himself is going to ask you when you stand before him at the end of your life. All he's going to ask you is, did you believe that I loved you? See, the whole, his, the whole of history points to Jesus Christ. And the whole of Jesus' mission was to get us to know God's love. That's it. There's really nothing else. And your job, my job, is to believe God loves us. And out of faith in God's love for us flows everything else. Things like obedience, things like our love for God, our love for each other, good character. All of this flows out of trusting God's love for us. So I want to ask you this week, would you remind yourself regularly that God loves you? Just deeply knows you. He like knows your number, 49 millimeters. He knows your color, it's red. He knows your brand, RSVP. Every time I make coffee, I'm going to be like, God loves me. God loves me. Second application point is this. You and I, we have so many, so many ways that we cheat ourselves of experiencing the hope of God. 
And we cheat ourselves by having so many little coping mechanisms in our lives, so many little hopes that we cling to. I don't want to condemn anything specific. They all have their place. Remember, they're all just arrows. But I want to ask you to choose one or two things this week to withhold using this week so that it creates that vacuum for you and say, you know, my hope is in God. He's my hope. All of these little hopes, these little coping mechanisms, they don't get me there. At their shining best, they're just sermon illustrations. You know, so choose something this week. It's what the Bible calls fasting. Choose something and allow the hope of God to enter and create some room for Him. Yeah? Okay, let's pray together. Father, I want to first thank you that you love us, that you are for us, and that we can have peace with you. We can have rest from the war that is our life. Thank you that it's not just survival of the fittest, strong eat the weak, but there is you. You love the weak, and you have died for me. So I want to know that love and found my life on that love. God, I ask you to give us hope this week. Cause us to experience the hope of your love and hope of heaven in our lives this week, I pray. I thank you for this church. I thank you for each person here, so valuable and precious and loved by you. I lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.